Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So today we are going to be primarily focusing on verses 6 through 8. However, um, I want to read verses 1 through 8. So each week, as we add on and go further through the text, um, we'll actually read the whole text so that we can have an understanding of where we've come from. So today I'm going to read to you from John 1, 1 through verse 8, and then we're going to jump down to verses 19, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 28 in John 1 for you. So let me do that. Starting in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Jump down to verse 19. It says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you neither, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Well, last week we started a series called Word Made Flesh. I am so excited about the next few weeks, where we're looking at the implications of the incarnation of Jesus, that as we look forward to Christmas in just a couple weeks, we want to be sure to focus our minds on the most important thing of this Christmas season. Like, for all of us, we we have things that go along with the Christmas season, right? You put up a tree, um, you gather with family, you give gifts to one another. Um, my, the, the faith family that adopted me when I was a teenager, we would eat tamales and we would drink Coca-Cola on Christmas Eve. So we all have our little traditions and things that we do. But the one thing that we do not want to miss this Christmas season is the unbelievable reality that the God of the universe put on flesh. That reality is one of the most astonishing and potentially even scandalous truths of the Christian faith, that the, that the one who spoke the world into existence became like us. us. So over the next few weeks, a couple weeks, we'll be working our way slowly through the first 18 verses of John's gospel with the hope that God would implant in our hearts faith that sees the beauty and significance of the incarnation of Christ, that God has become flesh, word made flesh. Now, our text today is kind of, 
I don't know, surprising? <laughs> I don't know if you caught it, but the f- verses we're looking at today seem to break the flow of John's introduction in his gospel, his introduction to Jesus. Did you notice that? Have you ever noticed that before? It's like this beautiful language about the divinity of Jesus, and then it's like, John. And you're like, what in the world? Like, it would almost sound better if John, well, we know him as the Baptist, but if he was out of this text, like, look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Beautiful, right? Now look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I mean, that, those two, if it was just those two verses back to back, that would sound really good. But sandwiched between those two statements, you have an introduction to another character, the person that we know as John the Baptist. Now, this is a literary device known as intercalation. Okay? It's where you begin one story only to interrupt it with something totally different and then to come back and finish that original story. And the idea was that these two stories, though they don't seem to, they actually work together. The Gospel of Mark is most well known for this. If you're, anybody here ever heard of a Markin sandwich? Yeah, a Markin sandwich. That's a real thing that they teach you in seminary. Pay thousands of dollars to learn that, right? But the more proper term is that these are intercalations, okay? And these intercalations in Scripture have a purpose. They are not random. The goal is that these interruptions are meant to enrich the original story. So there is something about verses 6 through 8 in John's gospel that is meant to enrich, enlighten, something about verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 16. So it's incredibly important that we study the text and find out what God is doing here. The question is, why has God interrupted us with John? Does that make sense? Why has God interrupted us? So let's start with verse 6 and see if we can discover what God is doing here, why he is interrupting us. So verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the lights that all might believe through him. Now, little side note here, I've kind of already mentioned this, but John is never referred to as John the Baptist in this gospel. Do you know that? He is in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John's gospel. If we were to put any label on John in this gospel, it would be John the witness, because 14 times in the gospel of John, the word witness is attached to John's name. Now, that's a side The temptation when reading these interruptions in John 1 is just to skip over them. Is that what you do? Because that's what I do. Our tendency is to skip over them, that when we get to verses 6 through 8, and by the way, it happens again in verse 15 between verses 14 and 16, but when we're just reading our daily reading or when we're reading the text, our temptation is just to skip over these. And so what happens is when we read these passages, we are just we are tempted to ignore the fact that John the writer has just interrupted us for some reason, right? And we want to get back to the meat of the text. So we just skip the part over John the witness, and we go back to reading about the divinity of Jesus. But the question we need to be asking is, why is John interrupting my reading about Jesus being the light of the world with some random dude named John the witness or John the Baptist? But here's the deal. All of Scripture is purposeful. So we have to say 
that God has interrupted us on purpose in this chapter. So if you want an outline, if you're a note taker to help you keep awake, if you want an outline, there is one overarching point and two subpoints that I have. And our big overarching point, and I believe it's the reason for the interruption here with John, is that in God's, this is the big point, the big theme, in God's perfect plan to reveal himself to humanity, he has chosen to use human witnesses. Let me read that again. In God's perfect plan to reveal himself to humanity, he has chosen to use human witnesses. All right, maybe a simpler and probably more memorable way to say that is the world, the world sees Jesus through our God-ordained witness. The world sees Jesus through our God-ordained witness. Now, there are two subpoints to that that we're going to talk about. Um, one is that there is something that we are not in the midst of that as human witnesses. There is something that we are not, and there is something that we are. So first, the world sees Jesus through our God-ordained witness. Verse 6, let me read that again. There was a man <clears throat> sent from God whose name was John. The first thing that we have to notice about verse 6 is that there is immediately a contrast, Okay? There's a contrast that as the writer John beautifully articulates the divinity of Jesus, he abruptly introduces us to a man, a human, a human named John. I mean, up until verse 6, think about what you have so far. You have the Word, and this Word was God. This Word was with God. This Word made everything. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man, that this was the plan of God that God would step out of heaven and step into our time, into our world, into humanity itself. And what John does is he immediately goes from the divine light to a man. You see it? There's an immediate contrast. And the shift is confusing for me, at least while I was studying. And maybe for you, because I go, hold on. (laughs) What is happening here? Why is it even necessary for John the writer to mention John the witness in this moment. What, what does he have to do with anything? Does that make sense? I, was very, I struggled a lot this week with that. Like, why is he even here? Because God does not need a witness, right? God does not need us to reveal himself. And that, and that is true. God does not need anything from us. He doesn't need us to help him. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. He is self-sufficient on his own. He doesn't need us to bear witness to him. If lightning strikes, right, it doesn't need a candle to help it light up the sky. The lightning is sufficient on its own, and God is absolutely self-sufficient in all that he does. And that's the reality of what the first five verses in John is telling us. And Rich did a great job explaining this last week, that this world that was not made, that was with God, this word has no beginning and end. He is not dependent on anything or anyone else, yet he sends a man. He sends a human being. And what is this man's purpose? What does God send him to do? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And then what does verse 7 say? He came as a witness. John's a witness. So let's follow this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. That word was with God, and that word shines as a light in the darkness. 
And now, a human being has been sent by God as a witness about that light. Could it be that in order for the world to see the light that shines in the darkness, in order for the world to see that the word that was God, that was with God, the word that has come as a light, in order for the world to see Jesus, could it be that God has deemed it necessary that there be a human witness? That in his plan, he would look to a human and say, I am sending you, I am ordaining you to be my witness. I think that's what John the witness is here. He is a shadow of the full plan of God. That although God does not need us, he has chosen us to be his witnesses in this world. That we witness to the true light. That God has deemed it necessary to send John as a witness. That in the midst of God's plan to redeem and restore the world through the coming of Jesus Christ, he has willed to work through human witnesses to bring about that plan. That God would look to us and say, you have a role to play. You have a calling. I am sending you as part of the mission, the mission that I have called you to. That we would look into the world and we would say, look and behold the coming of the Christ. That we are witnesses. Think about it this way. God was not waiting on John to witness about Jesus. Does that make sense? God was not in heaven like, okay, when's John going to do it? You know, He wasn't waiting on John to do that. It wasn't like the Father came to Jesus' the word and said, okay, we are waiting on a witness to proclaim your coming, and then we're going to come. And when that person decides to start witnessing then we're going to come. No, what does the text say? There was a man sent from God. That God sends a man to witness about the coming of Jesus. So listen, God is not waiting on you to witness about him. Does that make sense? And we, we have this guilt-motivated missions a lot of times where it's like God's waiting on me to do something. God's not waiting on you to do anything. God has already sent you. <laughs> He's already sent you. You are sent by God. God. And that theme is all throughout Scripture, that God has willed to work through sent witnesses. And God's perfect plan to reveal himself to your neighbor, to your family, to the nations, to the unreached peoples of the world, he has willed to work through sent witnesses, that the world sees Jesus through our God-ordained witness. I mean, think about it. Remember when we did Jonah a few months ago, right? God could have gone to the Ninevites himself he could have boomed his voice from heaven and said, hey, Nineveh, repent. You need to repent. He could have made walls, uh, whales fly in the sky, right? God can do whatever he wants, but he didn't. What does he do? What does the text say? Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying what? Arise, go. He chooses to send a human witness, Jesus, when he is preparing to ascend into heaven. After his resurrection, what does he tell his disciples? Jesus said to them again, this is John 20, 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That it's God's will to work through sent witnesses. Matthew 9, 37, one of the, I mean, just an incredible text. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Notice what the text doesn't say. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, the harvest is plentiful, so I'm going to boom my voice from heaven so they will all know me. He says, the laborers are few, so pray. And what are we praying for? That God would send witnesses into the harvest, that we serve a saving God and we serve a sending God, that he saves us and then he sends us, that God has deemed it necessary, that people are saved through human witness. Not that they have the power to save them, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about something that we are, but that we point to the one who saves. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that's our first point, that God's perfect plan is to reveal himself to humanity. He has chosen to use human witnesses, that the world sees him through us by ordaining us as witnesses. Now, within that, there is something that we are not and something that we are. First, there is something that we are not. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, this seems to be very odd writing from John. Okay, verse 8 seems almost unnecessary because, I mean, think about it. He's already said that Jesus is the light. So why would he see it as important to explicitly mention that John was not the light? I mean, isn't that obvious? Why would he say that John bore witness to the light, but then be careful to make the distinction in the negative, that John was not the light? And this word appears four more times, that the writer John wants to make sure that we understand what John the witness is not. I mean, look at verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He tells them, I'm not the Christ. And then we get three more nots. In fact, John, the gospel writer, is so bent on making sure that we feel the knot of John's testimony that he piles on the negatives in verses 21 through 25. I mean, look at verse 21. It says, they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And he says, what? I am not. Now, another sermon for another day, but was he Elijah? He says no, but of course, in one sense, he was Elijah. I mean, Luke 1.17 tells us that he had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not the physical reincarnation of Elijah, and that's important. So he was not Elijah in the sense that they were asking. So he's not lying here. He's telling the truth. They go on, and they ask in verse 21, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Go down to verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither, here are all the negatives, you are neither the Christ 
nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And then he says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. It's a lot of knots, right? It's a lot of negatives throughout that text. So here is what we are not. And this may sound strange, but I do think it's important to understand if we are going to be witnesses. John the witness says, I am not the Christ. He says, I am not Elijah. He says, I am not the prophet. He says, I am not, un- I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And then turn over a couple more pages to John 3. Go to John 3.28. He says this. This is John the witness. He says, you yourselves bear me witness, John 3.28, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And he says this, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And there we see the meaning of all the knots. Essentially, he says, I'm not the bridegroom. He says, I am his friend. And when the bride joins the bridegroom, that was language that was communicate the covenant between God and God's people, that the church is the bride of Christ. And John says, when the bridegroom joins his bride and everyone looks away from me to him, he says, then my joy will be complete. I am a mere witness to the great light of Christ. And he says, it's my joy that he get all the praise and all the glory. In other words, here's what he's saying. We will not begrudge it when all the attention turns from us to him. That's the great knot, that we must decrease and he must increase. We must not make much of ourselves, but we make much of him. I mean, consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 5, it says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Our 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, here's what he says. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. There's a lot of churches, a lot of Christians who what they're really proclaiming is themselves. And I think we all get caught up in that. We proclaim ourselves instead of proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The great knot is important because we can get confused and easily begin to think, one, that the salvation of others is dependent on us. That we are filled with this burden, but it's not the right burden. We take on the burden of salvation for your son, your daughter, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, the neighbor, the unreached. We take on these burdens that God never asked you to take on. God never called you to take on the burden of salvation for anybody else. Why? Because you are not the Christ. You're not the Christ. Christ is Christ. You are a mere witness of Christ. 
And we take on these burdens and we feel this deep guilt that God never asked us to put on ourselves. However, we are to have a great burden for the lost, for those who don't know him. We are meant to be moved to tears over the lost. And we're supposed to be driven to prayer because in prayer, you are relinquishing any claim of power you have. Any claim of power you have. You want to know if you think too much of yourself? The person who thinks too much of themselves doesn't pray. They have not given their control over to God. You try to take control for yourself. We are mere witnesses to his work, and our witnessing is not about us. It's about him. That he must increase, and we as the church, we must decrease. That's what we are not. Simply put, we are not the Christ, and we shouldn't try to be. God has not asked us to. We do not have the power to save, but we have been tasked with pointing to the one who does. So if we're not that, what are we then? If John is not the light, then what is he? Look at verse 6 and 7 again. You're going to have this memorized by the time we're done, right? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John is a witness to the light. So a witness is a person who has some knowledge and some experience that is valuable to establishing a fact. We many times associate that word with what? Courtroom, right? So story time. Last Monday, this past Monday, I got summoned for jury duty. After 15 years, they finally got me. So uh, I get there, and there are 100 of us there, and they bring us all into the courtroom, which, by the way, how many of you have ever been through the jury duty process? It's like half the room. The other half, they're coming for you, all right? <laughs> you just get ready. They're probably listening, and they're coming, all right? Um, okay, well, the case that I was summoned for was a capital murder case. So it was a big case. Um, it was a big case, and the lawyers took their time in vetting us because it was such a big case. And when, the t and when the state got up, they spent a very large chunk of their time, a very long time, establishing what is meant by the phrase, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? That in order for, in order for a juror to convict someone, the burden of the responsibility is on the state to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that someone did do what they are accused of. So, the lawyers for the state used a specific image to explain what is meant by beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm going to put that image on the screen right there. It was an image similar to this one. Boom. Okay. So they went on to explain that you can reasonably believe that that is what? A shark. Right. That is a puzzle of a shark. It doesn't mean that you have every puzzle piece in the right place, but you have enough of the pieces to have an understanding of what the image is. And then she said something, this lawyer. She said um, something that I, I think God brought back to my mind as I was studying and, and just thinking about the idea of what it means to be a witness to the light. The, the lawyer said, it is, it is our job to make the pieces make sense for you. She said, our goal is to take every piece of evidence, such as witness testimony, and help you understand how the puzzle fits together. And as I was studying, I couldn't help but think about that imagery, right? That God has revealed to us himself. He has given us knowledge. We know him. We know what he has done in us. We know what he has done through us. 
We know about his love, his power, his friendship, and his kindness towards us. We know him, and we have experienced him. We have experienced his faithfulness. We have experienced his presence when we suffer, when we're hurting. We know, it, what it, when it, we know what it means when we say God is present with us. We can taste it. We can feel it. We, we know what that means. We've experienced what it means to desire him. And with that experience and knowledge, we move through the world as a witness that God is the one putting together the puzzle, right? God's putting together the puzzle that is the mystery of the gospel And while, yes, in this life it may seem incomplete, full restoration is not here yet. We still suffer. We still fight the battle with sin and doubt. We still feel the loss, especially during the Christmas season. So that puzzle may be incomplete, but God uses our lives as a witness to in the story. If the burden of proof is on God, then he has chosen to use us, his witnesses, as the puzzle pieces, and he will move us wherever he chooses to move us, right? That he is displaying who he is to the world, and we as his witnesses, and we're that puzzle that can display who God is. How do we do that? There's two words that are very helpful in this text. John 1.23, the first word is voice. He says, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness. What does John say that he is? He says he's a voice. He's a voice that points to the coming of the Messiah, and it's no different for us. John the witness cried out that he's coming, and we have the privilege of crying out that he has come. And all throughout this text, man, that voice, it's filled with Christ's exalting truth, that that our voices are meant to be filled with Christ's exalting truth, True, that we are alive in Christ to use our voice. We have voices that are meant to worship Christ, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim right and true things about Christ. This voice, it comes through conversation, it comes through emails, it comes through text messages, that this Christmas season we would have voices that exalt Christ like John does. I mean, look, in John 1.15 it says, this is, was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John 1.34, he says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, so that we would use our voice to be a witness to the light. The second word that is helpful is the word behold. So think about this. He bore witness to the light so that people would believe. That's verse 7. So here's the question. (laughs) How do you bear witness to a light? I mean, the light's already there, right? You can see it. Does it really need you to bear witness to it? Everyone can see it. If it's a light, who, who cannot see that light there? It's blinding me, right? But all of us can see it. You don't need me to bear witness to the light. So how do you bear witness to the light? John 1.35, it says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said what? Behold. How did, you, how did I just witness to that light? I told you to look. <laughs> that when, the, when Jesus walks by, John the witness says, behold, look. That's how we bear witness to the light. That we would 
take those around us. And we wouldn't be comfortable with just talking about the weather or sports, but that we would have the confidence and boldness that they pray for in Acts to say, behold. Maybe you wouldn't use that word, but you would say, look. Look at the Christ. He has come. That's what we are. We are people who bear witness to the light. We behold Christ. I want to read that text that Steve read earlier. It says, we all, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That word beholding, to behold, it can mean to contemplate or to consider. So as witnesses, we behold Christ. We consider, we contemplate Christ. And when we do that in our witnessing, we are being transformed. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The more that we fix our attention and our minds on the glory and sweetness and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the more he transforms us. We behold literally his glory. We contemplate it. We consider it. And it gives us a proper understanding of who we are before him. It gives us a proper understanding of who he is in this world, that he is all authority and all powerful. I would close with a warning for us all. Uh, it's not typically the way you want to close a sermon, but, um, but a warning that we are careful that we are not witnesses that need the attention and glory for ourselves. Um, I think I had someone ask me one time, like, you know, what if... All these people are saved, but it was after you left your ministry and you had nothing to do with it. Would you be okay with that? It's a cheesy question, but it's always made me think. Be careful that we are not witnesses that need the attention and glory for ourselves. And I have to be careful, and our elders have to be careful, that when we're on stage, at this moment, it's not about us. There are a lot of churches, not just in America, all over the world, there are a lot of churches where it becomes a very consumer-driven consumer faith, where I am selling something, and it sounds good. It's not necessarily true, but it sounds good, and the congregation eats it up because it's entertaining. And many times in churches, the pastor gets put on a pedestal, and I'm not perfect. I'm going to sin, just like you. And so we have to be careful as a faith family that our leaders not put on a pedestal where God has not asked them to be. That myself, Rich, and Tristan would serve with humility. That we all would serve one another with humility. That we would understand our position before Christ. That he has not called us to be him. He's called us to be like him and a demonstration to the world of who he is. But we do not have the power to save we do not have the power to change hearts, but that does not mean that we do not feel that burden for the lost world. John came as a witness because God ordained it, and God has ordained that you and I be witnesses as well. He has sent us in his power and in his name. So the one thing I would ask of you, so I guess we're ending with encouragement. Um, the, one thing, the one thing that I would ask you, do you have a proper burden for the people around you.
Think about your family, your neighbors, the people you're going to see over the next couple of weeks in this Christmas time. Do you have a proper burden for them? Are you driven to tears? And are you driven to prayer? Releasing your power to God. Thank <laughs> you.